Hello, welcome to VocPod, the podcast that deals with all things vocation and discernment in the Church of England. This episode is about getting us to think quite broadly about what we mean when we say vocation, not in an exhaustive sense, but as a way of opening up the discussion a little bit more. We'll put this into a Christian context and explore some of the ways the Church has thought about vocation and what that means for people when they start to wonder if God is calling them to a particular type of ministry or activity. Then we'll look a bit at the process the church uses to help people with this, what we call the discernment process. What is it for? Who is involved? What is the biblical precedence for having such a system? And what might be its strengths and weaknesses? So these are some of the things we're going to cover in this episode. As I say, it's quite broad brush, and we'll be returning a lot to these topics in more detail in later episodes. So first, let's think a little bit about the term vocation. Now, under normal circumstances, I'm not really one for heading straight to the dictionary for definitions, as I find that tends to stifle ideas by acting as a kind of final word on a subject. But let's just, for the sake of argument, say if we look up vocation in the dictionary, we immediately see that it describes the word in terms of work and career. Perhaps this is not surprising, given that we often think about vocational jobs, careers that imply a lifetime dedication to something that a person feels a strong draw towards. But in religious terms, the idea of vocation is far more than just a career or occupation. It implies a deeper sense of being, the need to fulfil something where the prompt to act is coming from outside ourselves, what we might think of as a call from God. So, whereas a vocation towards a particular job or career might come from an inner sense of what we are good at, or a desire to use our experience to help others or to achieve particular things, a religious vocation might be thought of more as a prompting to use our gifts as part of a wider plan that God has for the world. Now, straight away, we can notice a distinct overlap between these two observations. Many people who feel that God is calling them to do something feel this call as an inner conviction, a quiet sense that there is something they ought to be doing. Others get a sense of vocation when someone else sees in them gifts and abilities that they perhaps had not noticed for themselves. For others, it is a sudden revelation of what they need to be doing with their lives. However the sense of vocation is felt, it can lead to a variety of feelings. For some, a sense of clarity. For others, a sense of confusion or even doubt. What is universal is the need to unpick what that sense of vocation means to the person. So how do we go about doing this? Very often in my role as an Associate Director of Ordinance, I hear people say, I have a calling to something, I'm just not sure what. The options are so varied that it can be quite bewildering at first. Are we talking about a calling to do a one-off project? Or is it something more long-term or even permanent? Are we looking at some form of authorised ministry? And if so, is it lay or ordained? If it is ordained ministry, are we talking full-time, paid or stipendary ministry? 
or is it likely to be part-time, unpaid ministry? This is before we've even started to think about the detail of what a ministry might actually involve. I think all I will say at this point is that these questions cannot really be worked out by ourselves, on our own. It's only by exploring these options with others that things begin to clear. This is perhaps the biggest difference between a vocational career and a religious vocation. A career ultimately comes down to the individual decision about what to do with one's life. Sure, there are interviews and exams, but whether or not you can do the job is mostly down to qualifications. A religious vocation is more of a group effort as the church collectively helps individuals uncover what God is calling them to do. The qualifications come later. So let's think a little bit about getting started. When people have an inner conviction that they should be doing something, I would suggest that they probably already have quite a good hunch as to what that might be. But if you really are unsure, talking to others in church who have a specific role might help. Finding out how other people got their sense of vocation can be enormously helpful, particularly if their story resonates with your own experience. So go and talk to people, grab a coffee and ask people about their stories. Well, that's a good informal start, but getting a bit of expert advice never hurts. Most dioceses will have some form of network of vocations advisors, people who are happy to sit down with you and help you explore what might be next. Have a look on your local diocese website to see what's available. Some might have open days or something similar where you can meet with other people in a similar situation to you. Having these early conversations can be very fruitful and illuminating, so give it a try. You might also want to do some reading to help clarify things in your head. A favourite of mine is a book called Hearing the Call by Jonathan Lawson and Gordon Mersel. It helps to unpick some of the common doubts people have about their sense of call and puts them in some very helpful biblical context. The takeaway message? God calls all sorts of people for all sorts of reasons, and if you're wondering if that includes you, the answer is almost certainly yes. The question is, called to what exactly? It's at this point that the church starts using some jargon and throws in a few acronyms for good measure. The key word you'll encounter is discernment. Again, let's resist the temptation to reach for that dictionary just yet. To be discerning is about good judgment, yes. But in the church context, it's about more than just making a right choice. It's about listening to God and discovering more about what God wants you to do. It would be easy if this involved a bright beam of light coming down out of heaven and a voice telling you exactly what to do and when. And for some people, I guess, their experience of vocational calling is not that dissimilar. But for most people, it involves a lot more spade work and a genuine willingness to go on a journey of honest self-discovery. However you experience this early sense of call, the church is likely to ask you to slow down a bit. This is because discernment, with a capital D, is a process the church uses to help people discover exactly what their calling is. The exact components of this process varies from diocese to diocese, so I'll keep this episode 
to just covering the essentials that you'll encounter wherever you are. Try to think of the process as less like a series of hoops to jump through on your way to a destination, and more like the peeling back of layers of an onion. I usually tell candidates that we're looking at between 12 and 18 months, but it can often take longer. I was in the process for nearly three years when I first started, and I have to say, at first I found that a bit frustrating, at how long it was all taking. But with the benefit of hindsight, I now realise that taking the extra time was probably the most valuable thing I could have done. The opportunity to learn and discover more about myself and my faith paid me back for my efforts many times over. During this process, you will be asked to reflect on the nine criteria for selection. Now, I should add at this point that the nine criteria are about to be replaced in September 2021 with the new joint discernment framework that uses a grid of qualities rather than criteria. I think the idea behind the change is that meeting criteria seems to suggest that you are the finished article once you've been selected for training. As someone who's been in parish ministry for several years, I can really confirm that this is not the case. Clergy are always in a state of learning. So instead of criteria, having qualities to inhabit encourages a lifelong and ministry-long reflection on what we bring to our ministry. A future episode will look at the changeover to qualities in a bit more detail. But for the time being, we have the nine selection criteria. And these are vocation, ministry in the Church of England, spirituality, relationships, personality and character, leadership and collaboration, faith, mission and evangelism, and quality of mind. Working with a DDO, or Diocesan Director of Ordinance, or one of their assistants like me, candidates sort of build up a portfolio of how they meet these nine criteria. The end of the process is a residential panel called a Bishop's Advisory Panel, where specially trained advisors assess the candidates against the criteria and make a recommendation to the candidate's bishop about whether they should go forward for training or not. Ultimately, the decision about whether someone should be trained or not belongs to the bishop, and again, we'll explore this role in more depth in a future episode. So that's the process as it currently stands. But where does this system come from, and why does the church use it? I'm not going to go too much into the history of the discernment process in this episode, because it will almost certainly be the theme of a future episode. But for the purposes of today, let's just say that the system was developed gradually over the course of the late 19th and 20th centuries, because nothing that the church ever does is done in a hurry. The move to having a national system was designed to ensure that the assessment of candidates was done as rigorously and as fairly as possible. Before any discernment process existed, the decision lay purely with the bishop, and if you wanted to get ordained, you just contacted your local bishop and arranged a chat. If you came from the right family and had a degree from Oxford or Cambridge, you were probably in with a good shout. But there is another element to this as well. If we look in the book of Acts at the decision taken by the apostles to create ministers to help them with the practical needs of the community, we see that the decision of who to select did not just sit with them. 
they consulted the Christian community, asked them who they thought might be worthy of this servant ministry. And this element of the community choosing their ordained ministers is retained in what we call the ordinal, the special service used at the ordination of new clergy. The people are asked if it is their will that the candidates be ordained. Now, I don't think anyone has ever suggested that people might actually decline, but the point is, is that they could if they wanted to. It's a symbolic act, but it means that from the times of the earliest Christian communities, there's been more involved in the decision about who gets to be a minister than simply the people at the top. It's a team effort. And while the bishops retain the right to make the final decision, the checks and balances created by involving advisors and DDOs and vicars and congregations means that the system is less open to error and bias than it perhaps once was. So, is the system perfect? Well, no, is the simple answer. Nothing involving human beings ever is. But the process is kept under review by those who work in ministry division, and the people who are involved in helping assist with this process often receive regular updates in their training. So for all of its strengths and weaknesses, this is the system the church uses to try as best as possible to make the system of discernment as fair and as impartial as possible. So that's a little bit about the process as it currently stands. In our next episode, we're going to hear from a diocesan director of ordinance who's going to talk a little bit about their role in this process. So join us then for our next episode of VOCPOD. <laughs>